You're listening to Deep Breaths, updates from CHEST on ReachMD. The following episode is part of a four-part educational campaign brought to you by CHEST in collaboration with AstraZeneca. Here's your host, Dr. Gerard Silvestri, MD, Hillenbrand Professor of Thoracic Oncology of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of South Carolina. Welcome to Deep Breaths, updates from CHEST on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Gerard Silvestri, the Hillenbrand Professor of Thoracic Oncology at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. And joining me today to talk about lung cancer is Dr. Lonnie Yarmus. He's an Associate Professor of Medicine and the Clinical Director of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. He's also a world expert in interventional pulmonology. Dr. Yarmus, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dr. Silvestri, and thanks to uh, Chest for organizing this and having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's get right into it, Lonnie. Tell me why it's not good enough any longer just to make a diagnosis in early stage uh, lung cancer. I mean, in the past, all we've done uh, as interventional pulmonologists is take a bit from a bronchoscopy of a peripheral lesion and then then send them off to the surgeon. What else do we need to be doing uh, in addition to that? Yeah, it's a great question, and things have changed pretty significantly and I think pretty rapidly over the years. So it's, as you said, no longer good enough to just have a diagnosis, and I think the main reasons are staging and and also specificity of a diagnostic procedure. So in the latter aspect, it's incredibly important to get tumor specificity in terms of different types of cancer, specifically non-small cell adeno and squamous cell carcinoma, but also the importance of collecting enough tissue for mutational markers, which we'll talk about some more, but the rising importance of that in early stage disease is really critically important. I think another really important aspect is along with peripheral bronchoscopy, we merge the same procedure with endobronchial ultrasound for lung cancer staging and having adequate and detailed staging is critical because these patients no longer just go for surgery. Some patients now opt for uh, radiation therapy and and there are non-surgical patients who are not able to undergo primary resection, and especially for those patients, appropriate mediastinal staging is is critical so they get the right therapy up front. You know, Lonnie, I'm told uh, by colleagues out in the community that, you know, listen, why bother? We get a PET, we get a CT scan, the mediastinum looks relatively clean on those scans. Why do an EBUS in that instance? And I know you actually have a lot of experience in here and and have published in this area, Care to tell us why it's important to uh, also stage the mediastinum, even if you sort of know they're going to go off to surgery or stereotactic body radiotherapy in, in those that are inoperable. Could you clue us into why you sort of think this is an important aspect of staging? Yeah, love to. I think first, from a radiologic perspective, I think we know now with with significant and mounting data that the specificity and sensitivity of of CT scan alone um, for radiographic staging is insufficient. PET scanning has helped and certainly has increased the specificity of identifying advanced stage disease, but the sensitivity remains relatively poor still. Um, and even with that and, and the existing PET data, we know from several studies now that 9% as an example of, of PET negative, uh, CT negative mediastinum patients end up with positive lymph nodes on, uh, on EBIS. 
as we look more prospectively uh, with tissue acquisition, as we do more and more EBIS for early stage patients, we're seeing an increasing trend of, of higher levels than that, up to 15 to 20%, where we're identifying patients who on imaging look like there are clinical N0, but in fact have N1, N2, and even N3 disease. So the incremental risk of adding an EBIS to these procedures is incredibly small, uh, and as is the cost, uh, but the incremental clinical benefit, um, we believe, and, and with mounting data, um, it's be really beginning to show that there's a significant benefit to doing it in all these patients. Yeah, and I would completely agree. And I think one of the keys there that you alluded to is this idea about getting the stage correct, right? Because the the treatment is so different by stage between stage 1A and and 3A, for example. Um, You go everywhere from surgery with nothing else all the way through to chemotherapy and radiation uh, plus or minus immunotherapy for the advanced stage patients who should never see an operating room um, because they're uh, not, uh, because an operation won't add to their life expectancy. So um, I completely agree with you there. Tell us, in addition, what role would pulmonologists have here? You know, uh, there's some domains where you would see the surgeon, but where do you feel like we fit in as a profession at the beginning end of seeing a patient with a new radiographic finding suspicious for cancer? Yeah, so I obviously as a pulmonologist, I'm a little biased, but I I think we're the gatekeepers here. I think, you know, the general referral patterns for solitary pulmonary nodules, both incidental and clinically indicated screening finds, I think are mostly flowing through through the pulmonary space. Um, So we see them early. Uh, I think uh, a lot of the literature and research that we've engaged in um, and that you've led many of the trials and have shown us that, you know, both our clinical acumen and just relying on on radiologic uh, findings are not enough. Um, and we need, you know, combined data um, uh, with a robust use of, of clinical calculators. Uh, and now the growing um, evidence and, and utility of circulating biologics and mutational markers to help identify early stage disease and then move that towards, um, you know, tissue acquisition. So uh, the minimally invasive diagnostics we've talked about both with EBIS and and peripheral bronchoscopy and and the growing trends and technologic uh, innovation there has really come a long way. And right now, I think we're we're really the ones who can do both, uh, right? So in a minimally invasive fashion stage, then diagnose a primary lesion in a single procedure. We know that interventional radiologists are great at doing what they do for for transthoracic approaches with a high yield, but a, a, a higher complication rate with a relative inability to stage. And on the flip side, from a surgical perspective, we want to avoid a lot of benign resection cases, and EBIS can really help do that as well as peripheral bronchoscopy. That's great. And I feel, and I'm beginning to feel this tension that we see um, in medicine between what we call minimally invasive and small biopsies. Between that and getting enough tissue to do some of those elegant molecular tests, can you tell me how that tissue, that tension is overcome in your clinic and in your bronchoscopy suite? And why potentially do you think it's important to have enough? And what is enough tissue to do those to do that extra testing? 
Yeah, the enough piece is, I think, still a work in progress. But what we do know is the general definition of adequate or sufficient tissue is a firm diagnosis, but also enough additional diagnostic tissue for mutational analysis. And and this is really the, the growing area of need. So a surgical specimen is a larger specimen and, and can accomplish all those. But I think what we've all worked really hard over the past few years to show is that with small biopsy specimens, transbronchial needle aspiration with EBIS, for example, we can achieve well over a 90% rate of sufficiency for mutations that are critical in understanding the, the treatment paradigm of these patients. That's great. And for those just tuning in, you're listening to Deep Breaths, updates from chest on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Gerard Silvestri, and I'm speaking with Dr. Lonnie Yarmus about lung cancer. Lonnie, one of the other aspects of this, I think, is, is communication and communication between the pulmonologist, the oncologist, and particularly the pathologists. Can you comment a little bit on how tissue needs to be handled correctly and, and how you work out that handoff, if you will, between those three services? Sure. I think you hit the nail on the head there with the use of the word communication, which is I think the most important aspect of this. So who does it, I think, is less important than the fact that it gets done. So open lines of communication with our pathologic colleagues, our thoracic oncologists, our radiation oncologists, our surgeons, and our pathologists help that happen. And we've morphed over time. So in the beginning of the sort of mutational development. It was at our center, really on the pulmonologist to request those tests. And over time, that's really been transferred over to pathology, where we have essentially reflex testing for any non-small cell cancer uh, diagnosis. So the, the important things from our perspective is one, setting up an appropriate pathway that works for your particular institution, uh, but then also figuring out intra-procedural metrics to determine that your QNS or insufficient rates for these ancillary tests are low and how best to do that. We're a big advocate of rapid on-site cytotechnologists or cytopathologists in the room, but that we realize is not available to all institutions. And we're working, uh, amongst other things, on a project with CHESS to, to look at guidelines to help optimize the acquisition of these specimens for EBIS throughout the community. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think communication is the key. I want to end up lastly by asking you, um, as you look ahead to the future, you know, I want to open the floor for you to have the final word on how you see the lung cancer management and the pulmonologist's role in that management evolving over time. Yeah, and again, I appreciate the opportunity of, of being here and, and, and talking with you today. I think that gatekeeper philosophy has long been a tertiary care academic center philosophy for pulmonologists, but I think we're now at the point where we can look beyond academic centers into the community where we all should be doing this as the primary advocates for our patients. So we're the ones to see them first, typically, and, and we have that control as a field to really treat, uh, well, so diagnose and, and set these patients up for the correct treatment up front. So if, as we gain knowledge and move together as a field, I think we can really help make big strides to impact survival in these patients. 
Ronnie, I completely agree. And I, and I would say there's so many places for a pulmonologist to fit into the world of lung cancer, which include everything from screening, nodule evaluation and management, diagnosis, staging, uh, appropriate referral for treatment, and then caring for patients who might have complications of their treatment, including things like radiation pneumonitis and immune therapy pneumonitis, thromboembolic disease, progression of disease, uh, rebiopsy where needed. Uh, and of course, we're, we're pretty darn good at palliative care. So there is a role for us, a central role for us in caring for patients with lung cancer. I really want to thank my guest, uh, Lonnie Yarmus, for joining me today to talk about lung cancer. Dr. Yarmus, it was great having you on the program. Thanks, Dr. Silvestri, and appreciate the invite and appreciate the time from Chest. Uh, it's great talking to you. This was Deep Breaths, updates from Chest. The preceding episode is part of a four-part educational campaign brought to you by Chest in collaboration with AstraZeneca. To access other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com chest, where you can be part of the knowledge.